0: Our Father, it's good to pause just for a few seconds. And most of us have had pretty, pretty busy days with very little pause. We're reminded that you say in your word, be still. But we're not just to be still, we're to be still and we are to know. Yet you are God. And when we can take a minute or two, when we can take 30 seconds, when we can take 15 seconds, and just mentally be still and know that you are God, it changes our entire perspective. It truly does. When we know that you are God, everything in our lives and everything on this earth is going to be okay because you are God. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. That means that you are the one that is in charge, not the other people that seem to be in charge, not the other people that so often seem to be able to exercise this authority or this power. We're not saying you haven't put people in authority, but we're saying you're the ultimate authority, and we're saying that you run them, and you run our lives, and you are able to take our lives, even in the very worst moments of our lives, the most bitter of situations and disappointments. And you're still God. And you're still in charge. And your plan for us is still on schedule. On the worst day of our lives. What a magnificent God you are. Remarkable. And how fortunate we are to know you. How fortunate we are that you have revealed yourself in the Bible to us. You have told us about who you are. You have told us about who we are. And how desperate we are. And how lost we are without you. And then we find that you have sent your son to be our savior. And that changes everything. So we've got guys here tonight, all over the map, all over the spectrum, in terms of where they are in life. What we all have in common is that we need you desperately. We can't can't breathe without you. We, we uh, We can't manipulate our fingers without you. And we can do so much more than that, and it's all from you. So tonight, Lord, as we look into this passage, encourage us, build us up, Remind us that we have a future and that we have a hope. You're not done with us. If we're at the lowest point, we don't have to, we don't have to despair. That's the truth. That's the gospel. Drive it into our minds and hearts tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Boaz. And we'll continue our study that we commenced last week. Now, the book of Boaz, which, as you know, does not exist. But metaphysically, uh, hey, I'm just horsing around. Turn to the book of Ruth. Why do I call the book of Ruth the book of Boaz? Because... In my estimation, in my opinion, as you read it, uh, that really the key figure in the book is not Ruth. The key figure is Boaz. He doesn't show up until chapter 2. But he shows up, and when he shows up, everything changes. Boaz was a real person. He was a guy who existed. Uh, he was a historical figure. We'll meet him when we are in heaven. Uh, he is a picture. He is a type though, in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Lord Jesus Christ does in our lives. You've got a situation that has occurred in the opening verses of the book of uh, Ruth, and we, we looked at that last week, and before we review that, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 to kind of set up where we're going tonight. Matthew chapter 1, if you've ever decided that you're going to read through the Bible, and it depends on what Bible reading calendar you use, or maybe you've just said to yourself, you know, I'm going to read through the New Testament. And you get all pumped up and you say, you know, I'm going to read that New Testament. That's a great thing to do. So you get all pumped up and you decide I'm going to get up early in the morning, you get a good strong cup of coffee and you turn to Matthew chapter 1 and right out of the blocks the very first thing you get is a genealogy. And you're thinking, and it's just begat, and he begat, and he begat, and he begat. We tend to think that genealogies are boring, but they're really not boring, are they? Have you spent any time on the internet trying to figure out your genealogy? Have you been to Ancestry.com yet? It's fascinating, because they keep adding different records, and they keep adding this, and they keep adding, you know, census from... You know, 1890, and the, it's, it's just wild stuff. It's just wild stuff. And you see, when you get a little history and you, and you talk to a cousin and they found out something, see, what is it? You're just doing your genealogy is what you're doing. On the surface, they look boring. Hey, you're. sometimes we think that's boring in the Bible. You don't think that about your genealogy. And I want to tell you something. The genealogies in the Scripture are not boring. They're absolutely fascinating. There's a reason they're in there. Matthew 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers who became the 12 tribes. Now here we go, and you're saying, yeah, okay, watch this. Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Uh, Tamar is one of five women mentioned in this genealogy, four of whom had questionable backgrounds. By the way, this is the genealogy of, of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's his genealogy. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, um, he was in the pickups, you guys remember him, the Old Testament guy, the middle worker. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. There's Boaz right in there. And again, what is this? Well, this is the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you work your way all the way down, it starts in verse 1 with Christ, goes to verse 16. You know, all these different generations, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. This is an important document, and Boaz is in the middle of it. What's interesting about this is that we are in, um, we are in the book of Boaz, chapter 1, we're in the book, book of Ruth, chapter 1. Boaz has yet to appear. Um, in, in Boaz, in, in Ruth chapter 1, Boaz's situation is, he's an older man, we can't quite pinpoint exactly, but he's not in his 20s, maybe somewhere in his 40s, way past the age when most men are married. He's not married. He's never been married. You've got to wonder what's going on in his mind, because you see, it's a wonderful thing, and it's a godly desire for a man to desire to be married and have children. I get a little bit concerned when I talk to young guys. Guys in their um, 20s who are uh, prolonging adolescence. <laughs> and our culture, our culture encourages that. And they are somewhat uh, hesitant to commit because they want a guarantee. Well, there are no guarantees in life. You make the best decision you can possibly make, but everything is a, is a risk. If you use wisdom and seek godly counsel and look at the Word of God and ask God to lead you, you make a risk, but it's a calculated risk, hopefully based on wisdom. When I did the ceremony for Rachel in court, traditional, fa- uh, traditional uh, what do you call those things? Vows. Vows. Uh, For better or worse, why do we say that? See, when you're young, you want it to be better. Well, that's why I don't want to commit. It might get worse. It might not get worse. It will get worse. That's why it's in there. And some 19-year-old kid didn't write those vows, did he? Some old old codger wrote that stuff. Who'd Who'd been through the battles. You see, because... You get two people together and you're gonna have better and you're gonna have worse. And you hitch the wagon, you hitch up, and you go for 50, 60 years. So you're gonna get you're committed for better or worse, richer or poor. And you're you're gonna get both. And those are both relative terms. But what's gonna happen is you're gonna be in the you're gonna be doing all right, and then you're gonna get nailed somewhere along the line. And you're gonna think, oh my gosh, what happened? Well, you got nailed. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You'll experience both. Well, you know, I, I want richer. Well, you're out of luck, pal. Just out. That's life. It's just life. For better or worse, for richer or poor. In sickness and in health. I mean when you're young, when you're young, you, you never get sick. And then you get older and you start breaking down. I got on an escalator the other day and pulled a hamstring. I'm taking the elevator. We just start breaking down. Need shocks and struts. Just, just you get miles on the tires, man. It's part of life. Somebody's going to get sick. Better, worse, richer, poor. Sickness and health. Forsaking all others. Well, see, I don't want to commit. Well, somebody else might come along who's better looking. Somebody else will come along who's better looking. Because you're going to age and your teeth are gonna fall out of your gums. (laughs) And (laughs) it's great. Is that not life? Till death do us part. And I'm gonna tell you something, this is good stuff. So if you're a young guy, you ought to be working on your character to become a godly man And you ought to start training before you're married to become a godly husband and a godly father. You say, well, how do I do that? You look for some guys, some older guys, that model that, and you hang around them. And you say, you know, I like to be like that guy. All right, then hang around and watch watch what he does. And then just emulate the guy, you see? And they're around. You don't have to move in with a guy, but just watch him, get lunch with him. Him you'll t- if, you, if you invite an old guy to lunch and tell him you'll pay, they'll go. <laughs> and then you start asking the guy questions. And he'll tell you stuff. But I, I will say this. God has not given most men the gift of celibacy. He's given them, it's his desire that they be married. You're part of a genealogy, but for most of us in this room, his plan is that you begat at some point in your life. You see, that's how it works. Here's Boaz, and he's in the genealogy of Christ, but in the events of Ruth chapter one, he's not married. Maybe he's thinking, I'll never have kids. Oh, here's the other thing. Here's the other thing about this guy. Doesn't have the greatest background in the world. Because if you take a look at that thing closely, it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, you know that when Joshua led them into the Promised Land, they wandered for 40 years, you know, Moses and that whole thing, and then they transferred, handed off the baton. Joshua takes them in. The first major battle they're going to have is at Jericho, and they send two spies in, and the two spies go to the home of this prostitute whose house is on the outer wall. (coughs) She hides them, she says, I've heard of your God and the great miracles and, and I know that no one can stand in his way and I want you to make a covenant with me and they did and her and her family, they gave her a scarlet cord. When this comes, when we come to take this, you put that in the window. If it's not in the window, we're free of our commitment. You put that in the, in the window and we see it, you'll be saved and you'll be part of Israel. She was a prostitute. So Boaz's mother had a checkered, embarrassing, shameful past. But she was forgiven. And not only was she forgiven, but she was given a whole new life. That's this Boaz guy. It's a remarkable story. He's in the genealogy of Christ. And and here's the point I'm trying to make. The reason he's not in chapter 1 of Ruth is that there are some events going on 50 miles away from Bethlehem where he is. There is a calamity. There is a tragedy that's taken place. And God in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite creativity and in the tapestry that God weaves throughout the generations of mankind in his providence uh, his incredible creativity, which astonishes and shocks us and stuns us. There are no coincidences. There are no accidents. There's no chance. God is weaving. God is moving. In him we live and move and breathe and have our existence. He's governing it all. Even when it looks like he's not governing, he's governing. And there's a tragedy taking place Over here in Moab, and you've got three women that are in the most difficult and desperate days of their lives that will be woven into the life of a guy 50 miles away who is absolutely clueless what's going on in their lives. And God is going to take one of those three women, bring, in chapter 2, at a particular time, which was the barley harvest, that wasn't chance, that wasn't accident, it was planned by the determined will of God, That's why they went, because it was the first harvest of spring, and they were starving to death. Da-da-da-da-da, marriage, son. Oh, by the way, Boaz and Ruth did get married, and I'm jumping ahead here. Don't you love it when a guy ruins the end of the movie? (laughs) Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now watch this. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, And Obed was the father of Jesse. Oh, and Jesse was the father of David the king. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. What we're going to look at here in a second. In Ruth chapter 1, there's absolute chaos in the lives of three women. Absolute chaos. Fifty miles away, there's a guy who probably has, quite frankly, some broken dreams. Probably some broken hopes. His life hasn't quite turned out the way that he thought, but he still has a particular desire that hasn't been fulfilled. And, and it could be that he's getting to a point where he thinks it'll never be fulfilled. And God's working. Oftentimes when we think God isn't working because we have been waiting so long, has God ever had you wait? And then you wait some more? And you wait some more, and you and you believe that what you're praying is according to the will of God. And, and there's something in you, you just you you keep praying, and your wife keeps praying. You you, you don't feel that you can let up. You just we got to keep praying. But but as time goes by, you get you're fighting off discouragement and hopelessness because my gosh, nothing's happening. Well, guess what? Something is happening. You just can't see it. Great verse. Isaiah 64.4. This, this is a verse for guys who are waiting. You're waiting on God. Here's a verse. No eye has seen a God like thee. The old King James says. No eye has seen a God like thee. Watch this. Who works for those who wait for him. <laughs> That's all time. One more time. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Man, I've been waiting and waiting and nothing's happening. It is happening you can't see it. He's setting it up. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. What God has prepared for those who love him. I think it's 1 Corinthians 2. God's at work. On the worst day of your life, he's at work. Uh, what you've got, and um, let, let's, let's make our way to uh, Boaz 1, Ruth 1. Okay. What you got here in the opening stages, we looked at it last week in just a quick, quick cliff note review. you got a guy by the name of Elimelech, and he was from Bethlehem, But uh, he went over to the country of Moab, took his wife, uh, uh, Naomi, uh, took a son, Malan, and took a a son, Chilion. And why did they leave Bethlehem? Well, there was a famine in Bethlehem. Why was there a famine in Bethlehem? This was the time of the judges, the previous book. The time of the judges was a time of spiritual decay. The nation got away from the one true God, started seeking idols, worshipping idols, and because of their unbelief and their moral degeneracy, uh, they were taken over by other tribes, other people. They would then, after years and years and years in desperation, call out to God. God would raise up a judge. He would raise up a leader to deliver them, and then they would be at peace, and then they would go back into decay, and they would lose their heart for God. They would lose their first love. They would uh, go back to the idols, and their hearts would be distracted, and then they would go down another sphere. This happened 12 times in Judges. The motto of the book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes, and as we looked at last week, it's very similar to our time. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. In the words of Fritz Perls, Big Sur, 1964, Esalon Institute, quote, I do my thing. And you do yours. And if by chance we find each other. It's beautiful. I believe the Greek word is crapizo. (laughs) Just made it up. But a whole revolution was based on that concept. I do my thing, you do yours. Oh, and if by chance we find each other. It's beautiful. Let's stand and sing. <laughs> you are so beautiful to me. That whole 60s mindset, that whole, it was nonsense. Total, total, and how many lives were busted and broken and just destroyed through that nonsense? Well, what, what does that mean that you do your thing, I do? Oh, every man does what is right in his own eyes. Uh uh-uh. uh. God has given revelation, God has given truth, and when man de- deviates from it, man falls apart, culture falls apart, families fall apart, and we need a savior. Yes, we do. Those were the time of the judges. So this guy leaves because there's famine. Why is there famine? Because God's judging the nation because they've gotten away from God. He goes to the worst possible place, which is the nation of Moab. He thought things were gonna work out. He thought he was gonna run from adversity. What happens while they're there and they thought they'd be there a short time, what happens is the short time turns into 10 years and the man and his two sons all die. Naomi, the widow of Elimelech, the boys had married two girls, Moabite women. And now you've got three women who were in a heap of trouble. In Ruth chapter 1, and let's pick it up. in Verse 5. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of, bereft of her two children and her husband. Now 6, here's a great tragedy. I I cannot, it's hard to convey to you how difficult their situation was because back then, if a gal, um, we have a completely different culture. There are a lot of situations now where women are paid more than men. Back then, if if a woman's husband died, she was basically helpless and with support and, and she was extremely vulnerable. It was not a good situation for a woman. Now you get three women who have lost their three men. In the, same, the males have been wiped out in this family. So here's what we read. They're in crisis, they're in difficulty. Verse six, then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that would be Naomi, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab, while they were there, that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food, back in Bethlehem, back in Judah. You know how they would, they would spiral down, and then they would get desperate, and then they would call on the Lord? Well, they called on the Lord, and God lifted the famine, sent the rain, and suddenly there was a harvest. And they heard about this, because they're just 50 miles away. So they're without support, they're without means, they're in a very, very difficult situation. If I could um, title verses 6 to 13, here's what I would call it. I would call it, Stunned, Stranded, and Hopeless. That describes the condition of these three women. Now watch what happens here. So she departed, verse 7, from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. What she is doing is she's sending them back home, which is really kind of interesting because these were they were in the land of Moab. Of Moab. The, Moab the Moabites were the mortal enemies. They, had, they didn't worship Yahweh. They worshipped... Another God, a violent God, where they would even sacrifice their babies into the fire. It was a horrific, twisted, perverse. This is really kind of interesting, because Naomi says to them, in other words, she's going back to Yahweh's land. In the Old Testament, whatever land you were in, that land and those people had certain gods. And the God of Israel and the God of Judah was different. That's why we find it so harsh in the book of Joshua. Joshua was told by God, when you go in and deal with those different ites, you know, Canaanites, Perorites, Amorites, Hitler, you know, whoever they are, the different ites in there, they all had different gods. And those gods were so perverse and so corrupt. Many archaeologists archeolo- uh, believe that those, those advanced ites in the book of Joshua uh, because of the perversion of their religions were shot through with venereal disease and children were born with, with horrific conditions. And God said, when you go in, I want you to utterly destroy them. That seems very, very harsh. But why would God say that? Because it had to be cleansed. It had to be purged. That nation, because he didn't want those people being, being um, uh, influenced by those horrific gods. Well, that's exactly what happened. So these, this is what's fascinating. Naomi is going back to the land of Yahweh, and she says to her two daughter-in-laws, now, I don't want you going with me, I want you staying here, and you go back to your families, you go back to your lands, and you go back to your God. This woman's kind of hard to figure out. I, I would say, I think it's fair to say, she was not real spiritually discerning, she was not real spiritually mature. Her and her husband had made a poor decision ten years previous they had really violated the essence of Scripture. You know, the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. You want to get screwed up? Hang around with people that are screwed up. We'll say, well, I, I need to evangelize. Oh, well, you need to evangelize, but you've got to pick your spots. If, if, if Read Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the path of the ungodly. You've got to be careful who's influencing you. You've got to be careful uh, who is uh, who you're hanging around with. He who walks with wise men will be wise. You walk with foolish men, you're going to be foolish. It's it's not that we don't have interaction uh, with unbelievers. Of course we have interaction. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2. See, we've got a different mindset. The minds of the unbelieving cannot discern the truth of the gospel. It is is foolishness to them. And it was foolishness to us until God opened the eyes of our heart and the eyes of our minds. Uh, Romans 1 talks about uh, being darkened in their minds. Uh, You're not of the darkness, you're of the light. Christ has come in. So all I'm saying is we interact. But they cannot be our influencers. They cannot be our go to guys in the clutch. You've got to have right friends. You've got to find godly men. Um, aren't you concerned about, if you have uh, kids in junior high or high school, aren't you concerned about their peer group? You're always trying to teach your kids not to be influenced by their peers. I've noticed that peer pressure doesn't go away when you get out of high school. Haven't you? Uh, you, you see, the fact of the matter is, most, when, when you're a teenager, most of your peers, most most guys you're hanging out, most guys, if you're a teenager and you've come to know Christ, most guys in your school are going the wrong direction, on the wrong path that leads to destruction. They're going the wrong way. You go to college, most guys in college, are on the wrong path, going the wrong way. Uh, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Most guys are on the broad road leading to destruction. Jesus said, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. You say, you get out of college, you get a job, you get in a corporate world. Most guys in their 20s in the corporate world, or you're, you know, or you're older, or fireman, or whatever the heck you are, most guys are on the wrong road going the wrong direction. What I'm saying is, pure pressure is always alive and well. I don't care if you're 16 or you're 66. So you've got to choose friends wisely and carefully, don't you? Elimelech and Naomi didn't do that. And she's been, she's been screwed up by the culture. Uh, by the way, the Moabites, we talked about them last week. Uh, where do the Moabites come from? Well, we mentioned the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't know about that. Lot was told with his wife and daughters to leave. And they resisted because, you see, they, they had been so influenced, they'd been so part of the God, they, really, they, they couldn't even see how bad it was. They'd been tainted, their discernment. And he'd get out of here and don't look back. Well, she looked back and you know the story. So then he's with his daughters, they get him drunk, and they say, gee, this you know, whole thing's been destroyed, we'll never have children. So they both have, uh, on one night, one daughter sleeps with him, Gets pregnant, and next night they get him drunk again, and the other daughter sleeps with him. Do you see how bad company corrupts good morals? you got to be careful, guys. Once again, hear what I'm saying, keep it in balance. I'm not saying you don't interact with them. But I'm saying you make sure you're the influencer. And you're not the influencee. That making sense? Makes sense. And we've all been there, haven't we? Sure we have. She made a bad move with her husband. And now she's going to go back. All right, give her credit. She's going back. By the way, her going back and returning is a picture of repentance. Repent. What is repentance? Repentance is going one way that is the wrong way. And by a change of will, by a change of heart that the Spirit of God produces, you're going this way and you realize this is the wrong way. And you literally, to repent is to literally make a U-turn. If you've ever made a U-turn in your life, you have just repented. Sometimes you'll be at an intersection, there'll be a sign that says no repentance. <laughs> Anybody ever ignored that sign? Sure. When you see that you with the circle and the deal right across it, no U-turn, no repentance. Give her credit after 10 years, she's repentant and she's going back where she should have been in the first place. What's weird is she's saying to the two daughter in laws, I don't want you to go with me. Now, you know, different, you read different commentaries, different scholars, they got different takes on this. Uh, My take is, uh, I don't know, she was just screwed up. This was not the best thing for these girls to remain in the land with their families who are idol worshipers that will send them into an eternity apart from Christ and salvation. But that's what she did. Maybe maybe the... Uh, you remember we said uh, there was just great tragedy? There was great loss? When there's great loss, you're in crisis. When there's great loss, you're wondering, how will I ever recover? How am I going to make it? How am I going to... Some of you guys are in a chapter right now where uh, you're in tremendous loss and you're grieving. You can't, uh, you know, you can't short circuit that process. If there's been great loss in your life, death of a loved one, death of a child, death of a career, death of health, death of... You're going to grieve. You don't get over that in a weekend. You don't go to some seminar and get over that. Depending on the depth of the loss, it, it could take you, it could easily take you a couple of years. Some uh, Rein, uh, hold, hold on, not Reinhold Niebuhr, um, German guy stood up against Hitler. Bonhoeffer, thank you. Uh, if you read the biography of Bonhoeffer, In World War I, his older brother went off to war and was killed. And in the biography, Christmas at their home, uh, there there were certain traditions they did in the Bonhoeffer home. Godly family, love Christ. The father was so grieved that certain traditions that they would practice in the home at Christmas he couldn't bring himself to do until 12 Christmases after the death of his oldest son. He was grieving so deeply. I think Naomi was grieving. You guys still with me? Yeah. And, and you know, we all look pretty darn good here, don't we? I mean, you're relatively clean. That was supposed to be f- funny. Uh, maybe you're next to a guy who isn't relatively clean. I, I, I don't know, but we, I mean, we look, everyone looks like we're pretty much together. And some guys are. Some guys are fine, They're in a good spot, quite frankly. Other guys sitting around you within reach uh, are dying. Phillips Brooke, the old professor who wrote little town of Bethlehem, he taught preaching. And he used to say to young seminary students, he used to say, whenever you preach, preach to broken hearts. There's one in every row. And they don't look like it. But probably within reach, or getting up and just walking a few feet, there's a guy somewhere around you who's crushed. It happens in life. I want to put, let's just put, let hold here for a second. Why is life so hard, and why do we get nailed, and why do we get hit? And, and why do these crushing things come? It had to be, here, here are three women, and the three males, within a short, we don't know exactly the, the sequence, the chronology, but within a very short time, all three are widowed. Boy, that's devastating. There are uh, some books I go back to over and over again. The best books are written by the old dead guys, in my opinion. And if you've been in this study for a while, I referred to this book, All Things for Good, by Thomas Watson. The original date that this book was published, I think I know it, but I better double-check it. The original, yeah. The original date of the publication of All Things for Good was 1663. Based on Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That verse doesn't say all things are good, because all things aren't good. The death of a husband is not good, death of a spouse, a a, a child is not good. a spouse who betrays you and goes off with someone else, that's not good. Rape is not good. Bankruptcy is not good. Murder is not good. It doesn't say it's good, but it says, and we know that God works all, watch this, we know that God works all things, he works it together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This book, uh, All Things for Good," is based on that title. It was written in 1663. What's interesting is in 1662 in England, if you were a Bible believing pastor who taught the gospel of Jesus Christ, there was a law passed. And if you were a Bible believing, gospel preaching pastor, in 1662, every pastor that stood on the Word of God was thrown out of his church in England. And a law was passed that pastors could not, in that category, could not go within five miles of a church and they were banned by law from preaching. Now back then, there was no separation of church and state. The pastors were paid by the king, by the crown, by the state. And so what that meant was they lost their livelihood, they were destitute, a lot of them wound up literally in debtor's prison at Newgate. It was a horrific time, it was a time of persecution. And for those pastors, Thomas Watson, who was a pastor, who was thrown out of his church, wrote a booklet called All Things for Good to encourage the pastors who had lost everything. And whose hearts were crushed. Let me read just a section. Because when affliction hits us and tragedy hits us, the question always comes up why? Why? <sighs> Listen to this guy. This sucker is good. Let me show you. I've worn out, I think this is my fourth copy of this book, and it's starting to go. I, I, my problem with reading this guy is I underline. I pretty much underline every sentence. It's just uh, just a collection of colors and markings. You can turn anywhere. I marked it. Here's one. Why tragedy? Why hardship? Why affliction? Why do we go through stuff? Watch this. As, <clears throat> as the hard frost in winter bring on the flowers in the spring. Now you just think about that. Cold is part of God's work to develop those beautiful flowers. I don't think normally a lot about flowers. This weekend, I spent $97,000 on flowers. (laughs) I've never been in bankruptcy before. As the hard frost in winter brings on the flowers in the spring, you got that? As the night ushers in the morning star, so the evils of affliction produce much good to those that love God. And then he goes about 16 pages biblically to prove that. Two more sentences. Affliction teaches us to know ourselves. In prosperity, we are for the most part strangers to ourselves because we're having such a dang good time. God makes us know affliction that we may better know ourselves. And when I better know myself, I realize how deeply flawed and deeply problem- problematic and how deeply screwed up I am, and how I screw up everything I touch, and that's why I need a Savior. Then you flip over to page 52, and he talks about the fact that our Father is a physician. He's a doctor. Jesus was called the great physician. Am I losing you guys? You still with me? Listen to this. God is a skillful physician. He knows what is best. God observes the different temperaments of men and knows what will work most effectually. Some men are of a more sweet disposition, and these men are drawn by mercy. Others are more rugged and knotty pieces, K-N-O-T-T-Y. These God deals with in a more forcible way. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. We've had the cred kicked out of us, haven't we? Yeah. You know what? Most of us are naughty. You can take that two ways. N-A-U-G-H-T-Y. And that usually goes along with K-N-O-T-T-Y. Listen to this. Some things are kept in sugar. Some are kept in brine. There's wisdom. I hang around a lot in the brine. Why is that? Yeah, kind of naughty, kind of hard. Hard to deal with, hard to work with. Have you ever said to yourself, or said to a friend, you know, for some reason I always seem to have to learn the hard way. That's every guy in this room. We all learn the hard way, and and because God's a great physician in order to save our lives, you know what he does? Sometimes he puts us in the brine. It's not sweet, it's pungent. When you're in the brine, you want out of there as quick as you can get out. And you say, we well, get me out, and he doesn't get you out, and he keeps you there. But he's the great physician. Have you noticed that doctors have no qualms about hurting you? <laughs> in order to help you. Have you noticed that? I mean, they don't even, they, 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 they don't shed a tear. They just, they'll cut on you, man. They'll get a saw. They'll, they'll hurt you. And why do they hurt you? They're trying to save your life. Yeah. He's the great physician. So these women are stunned, they're stranded, and they're hopeless. Naomi is trying to convince these women to stay and not go, and she says in verse 12, this is interesting, uh, actually 11, she says, return my daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? You say, what the heck does that mean? There was a Leverite law, they would call it, in the Old Testament, and the concept was, because if a woman was widowed, Uh, She and and couldn't go back to her family. She was destitute. I mean, she was on her own, and it was such a serious matter that there was a law that if a woman was widowed, the man's living brother was required to have sexual intercourse with her so that she could have children, hopefully sons, who by the time they are 13, 14, 15, could support her financially. It's a different culture. And Naomi says, listen, I'm too old. I can't bear any more sons. I can't help you. That's verses 12 and 13. So they're stunned, they're stranded, they're hopeless. Now I want you to catch something. Tragic situation. We encounter tragic situations. There are three potential responses to God when tragedy hits. It might be a divorce It might be uh, finding out you've got cancer or your wife has cancer. It could be a thousand different things that bring tragedy into our lives. Three possible responses that we have in our hearts towards God when tragedy hits, and they are all typified in the lives of these three women. Let me give them to you. The first response to tragedy is one becomes bitter towards God. That is characterized by Naomi in verses 20 and 21. Actually, let's pick it up in 19. So they both went. Ruth is with her. We'll get back to that. They both went until they came to Bethlehem. Now they're back in home turf where they should have been, where she should have been in the first place. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? They hadn't seen Naomi in 10 years. Is that Naomi? Naomi? That's Naomi. And then Naomi says, verse 20, She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The term Mara means bitter. She literally wanted to change her name. (coughs) Names in the Old Testament had tremendous significance. Don't call me Naomi, you call me bitter. Which typifies... Her response, quite frankly, to the Lord, she was bitter about her tragedy. She was bitter about her loss. Uh, She was devastated. And if we're not careful, bitterness can eat our hearts. Here's the second response to tragedy. The second response, potentially, to tragedy is that one turns from God. This is highlighted in verses 14, 15, in in the daughter-in-law named Orpah. And they lifted up their eyes, these two daughter-in-laws, and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, watch this, and her gods. See, you go back to those people, you go back to Moab, you go back to that clan, that's a certain clan on certain land that's ruled by certain gods. What did this gal do? She turned away from Yahweh. She turned away from the living God. So that's the second response. You just turn away from him. He's not good, he can't be trusted. Uh, It's just, I don't want to go down that, I don't want to go through that narrow gate. I want that broad road, I want the easy road. Okay, here's the third response. Third response is typified by Ruth, and the third response is simply to turn to God with your whole heart. Verses 15 through 18. And remember, uh, Naomi's saying to both these gals, now you go back, you go back, you go back, you go back, guys. don't go with me, watch this. But Ruth said, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, Watch this, and your God, my God. Your Yahweh shall be my Yahweh. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus, watch this, watch the seriousness of these words. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. She cut off her old life. She she left family, she left land, she left friends, she left culture. And she said, I'm with you, I'm with Yahweh, I pledge it till death parts us. Jesus said, a man's not willing to leave, father or mother, brother or sister. Doesn't mean that we don't love family members, but we mean, it does, here's what it does mean. It means that you love him more. He's first. My dad loved my mom to death for 60-some years. But I'll tell you what there's no question in our home Jesus was first Jesus was first in my mom's life and Jesus was first in my dad's life and they loved each other like crazy because husbands Ephesians 5 love your wives just as Christ loved the church you see it's a good thing it's a healthy it's a wonderful thing Christ is first you You's got to have your whole heart Hey, this gal was in. She signed up. I mean, she was in. Whole thing. Jumped in with both feet. Now, I want to ask you something. Does she know that one day she's going to be in Matthew chapter one? (laughs) No. She doesn't have a clue. She's not sure. She's not going to sure. She's not sure she's going to get breakfast the next morning. Because once again, remember, they're stunned, they're stranded, and they're hopeless. You know, what, you, know what this, you know what these women needed? Let me tell you what they needed. They needed somebody to save them. They needed somebody to deliver them. And that's where this guy Boaz shows up. Remember Boaz? Remember? Bo, is, is Boaz married? No. Is he a little bit older? Yeah. Getting a slight paunch? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I've never seen the guy, but I would imagine. You know? Can he jump as high as he used to? Can he still dunk? No. Probably not. Does he spend more time stretching? Does he spend more time taping up? than actu- uh, Have you noticed old guys spend more time stretching and taping up than they do to shoot baskets for 10 minutes? It takes you an hour just to kind of get ready. I remember uh, I, was, I was almost 40. I was, on, I was working with some guys in the ministry. We were all about the same age. And some young high school guys, pretty good athletes, challenged us. We we're, were all pastors. And they, um, a couple of them showed up at staff meeting and said, well, can we come in just real quick? I said, sure. They said, uh, we want to lay down a challenge to you guys. We want to play basketball. We want to play in basketball. And, and, uh, we, and they kind of, you know, they, they, somebody needed to whip their tails. <laughs> and they were a little bit haughty. And we went not play basketball. We, so we said, okay, well, okay, fine. And we set up a time, you know. And the word got out. And it was interesting because on that Saturday, we went to this gym. And there were, there were some people from the church. The word got around, you know, the pastor was going to play these young. And some of these young guys are pretty good athletes. Some of the pastors, these guys have been pretty good athletes. And it was interesting just watching the warm-ups. Because the young guys, do they stretch? Nah. They just come in and they're, you know, they come strutting in and, and uh, they just start uh, they just start doing layups and they're doing all this and then they start going up, you know, and doing this, and you know. I mean, they didn't stretch, they didn't warm up, they, didn't, they just started doing it. Why? Because they're young. They're young. And they were cocky and they started telling us what they were going to do to us. Now, are we out there doing layups? We're not doing layups. We are over there taping up. We're putting on knee braces, we're putting on uh, triple cups, <laughs> we're putting on elbow, we're putting mouthpieces, athletic glasses. We, I mean, it just—we we didn't have time to do it. We were just trying to prepare ourselves to get out there. Well, we finally got out there, and they were taunting us the whole time. And then we started playing. We didn't play full. And they wanted to play full court. We said no, we play half court. And when the score was seventeen to nothing, and we were ahead. Let's just give glory to God here. <laughs> it was a glorious moment. I, I, don't mean to be a, uh, I don't mean to be irreverent there. It was, it was a pretty sweet moment. It was actually biblical because the older men are to teach the younger men. <laughs> and I remember Dave Simmons planting down there. Dave used to play at linebacker at Georgia Tech and play for the Saints and Cowboys. So. Dave was just, he just sucker had tree trunk legs, uh, and Dave was just thick, and, and uh, Dave just planted and they couldn't move him. And this one kid came up behind him, you know, and just kind of, you know, and know, Dave, he just, pooh! <clears throat> <laughs> I mean, that kid was stunned, he was on the floor, and he was stunned, because that was Dave Simmons who ministers to families all over the country, you see? Yeah, but this is basketball, boy. (laughs) We're not doing ministry. This is basketball, and you're taunting us. And we whipped those little suckers' butts. (laughs) Were they better athletes? We had experience. These women were in a place, and you know what these women needed? They needed a godly man. They needed a godly man. They needed a Boaz. Real quick, real quick. Go to Job 29. Can you give me three more minutes? Okay. I'm gonna take five, but I thought I'd ask for three. <laughs> Go to Job 29, because I, I wanna give you a glimpse of Boaz. I wanna give you a, a, a preview of coming attractions. We haven't gotten to Boaz yet. I wanna tell you the kind of guy he was. He, he was a man. I, I wanna tell you something, guys. We want to work to emulate this guy, Boaz. He was, he was a man of stability, he was a man of strength, he was a man of loyalty, he was a man who could be trusted. Thomas Watson, who wrote this book, and one of his other books, Thomas Watson said, some men are shooting stars, some men are fixed stars. You know what I told my daughter all through the years? So you don't want a shooting star, you want a fixed star. And there'll be some guys that come into your life and, it, you know, it's like you're out in the desert, you know, driving across I-10 to, you know, California. In the middle of the night, you know, and all that, sh- <laughs> What the heck was that? Well, that was a young adolescent with a lot of personality and no brains. <laughs> no wisdom, no maturity, no stability, can't hold a job, doesn't know how to get up in the morning, doesn't, the, sh- and they look good and they're attractive. Oh my gosh, that's what I need. No, it isn't. You need a man. You need a fixed star. When you're lost, when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you don't have a clue where you are, if you can find that north star, you'll survive. You can navigate off a fixed star, not a shooting star. Boaz was a fixed star. Job was, I'm going to show you this real quick, because guys, listen, Boaz came into the life of Ruth and the life of Naomi, and he changed their lives. He's a picture of Christ who comes in to our lives, with our brokenness and our screw-ups and our failures and our calamities, and he saves us. He wants to use us. He wants to use you and me. We have different giftings, we have different abilities, all this stuff, but he wants us to grow into maturity as godly men. And when you grow into maturity as a godly man, you help deliver other people who are in trouble. That's why you're a godly man. Where am I going? Job. Look at this. Job's talking about, he's looking back fondly before he was afflicted. He says uh, in verse 20, uh, chapter 29, Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, before I was suffering. Verse 4, as I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were around me, and when my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. In other words, I remember the good days. I remember the good times. We all love prosperity. What does Ecclesiastes 7 say? Consider the work of God, who can straighten what he has bent. Job's life has been bent. In the day of uh, prosperity, be happy. In the day of affliction, consider. God has made one as well as the other. He's looking back on the good days. When I went out to the gate of the city, why would he go to the gate of the city? That was City Hall. That's where everything was done. That was Wall Street. That was the financial district. Everything was done in the gates of the city. Watch this. When I went out to the gates of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves out of respect. The old men arose and stood. Respect. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouth. Respect. The voice of the nobles. Nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the palate because what they had to say was not comparable to what Job had to say. He's just telling the truth. This is how God had blessed him, but now God had taken it away. Now watch this. For when the ear heard, 11, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw it, gave witness of me. In other words, when he spoke, when people's ears heard what he said, they blessed him. This man of wisdom. Watch this. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help. Hey, I'm going to tell you something. You got, in your life somewhere, there's some people around you that are in desperate need. Can I give you a word? Help them. Say, man, my eye was taking a a hit. Help them. Reach out and help them. Well, you know, can I get a receipt on that? Can I get a... uh, No, you can't. Just help them. Don't give, and and listen, I'm saying, I'm not saying be stupid. I'm saying be wise, but if you know something of their situation, I'm not saying give to every guy on the street that's panhandling. You know I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you're aware of a situation and someone's in need, help them. I can't afford to. You can't afford not to. Given it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. God is your banker. He's your banker. God knows to the penny how much you will need to survive until you take your last breath and he has pledged to supply it. I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. Widows are destitute, but not when they're around Job. Why? Because he Helped, he gave, he provided. He made their hearts sing, not in the prayer, in joy. This is what God wants his men to do. You say, well, see, that's kind of a risk. You're dang right it's a risk. It's called walking by faith. And you know, a lot of us, you know, we walk, we walk by sight. Well, guys, I can't do that. Why can't you? Oh, you know, I'm just, I'm not true. It's going to work out. Nobody knows how it's going to work out. But let me tell you something. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Try it. See what happens. It's great stuff. Uh, I, I can't do this whole thing. Look at this, 15. I was eyes to the blind. And feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I investigated the case, which I didn't know. Somebody's in need, there's a case, there's a, they come to the city gates, all right, let me figure out what's going on here. And you know what? He handled it right. Didn't take bribes, no backroom deals. Didn't sign the bill without reading the bill. <laughs> what's going on here? What are the facts? What would we'll, we'll honor, we'll honor the Lord? And they did it. Verse 17, I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from the teeth. Sometimes, we, hey, I'm going to tell you something. You know what this is about? As I read this, you know what I see here? Godly men protect women, and godly men provide for women. Man, is that ever out of date? That's what I see here. There's a gal, she's got someone on her tail. Somebody needs to be a man and stand up for. Her and get in between her and a guy that's threatening her. You gotta use your head. I'm not telling you. I'm just saying. But, but don't operate out of fear and so I'm not getting involved. She needs a man. She needs a boaz. Step up, God'll be with you. We've done a good job of emasculating men in the Christian church, haven't we? 21, to me they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel, and you can read the rest of it. 25, we got a hit. I chose a way for them and set as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. That's what Boaz is gonna do for these gals. That's what Jesus does for us. You know what you need? You know what I need? I need the Lord Jesus Christ. I I need Jesus. He's my Savior. He's my Deliverer. Every moment of my existence, I, I can't live, I can't think, I can't breathe without him, and I live as though I can. And why are you in a hard place? He's trying to get your attention. And it's good stuff. It's good stuff. It's true. And may God give us opportunities this week to be Boazes. We bow our heads, Father, and that's our prayer. We're not going off half-cocked here. We're just simply saying we would like to be men who would be used. We don't want to be famous. We don't need to be famous. That's all a bunch of nonsense. Anybody with half a brain doesn't seek it. It's a slippery slope. We just want to be in our place of responsibility where you have put us, and we want to be faithful, and we want to be representative. We want to point people to Jesus. And we would hope that they would see you living in us. And perhaps this week there will be someone, and they need a cup of water, or they need a hundred bucks May we not loan it, may we give it, and not worry about repayment. And may we give it in Jesus' name because we have have received infinitely more from you. Challenges this week bring some opportunities to us that might scare us a little bit. Give us strength to stand up. Trust you. Stand in the gap and bring honor to your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.